establishing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. Tonight, we're talking about doppelganger DNA and a spider web of misinformation. In the second half, we'll have our conversation with Drs. Michaela Stiver and Zach London, part of the team behind the new hit game for Ramana. But first, the news. We all have that person that everyone says is our doppelganger. I mean, looking at the Zoom right now, you might be able to say that about me and Jason, especially as I catch up rapidly in the gray hair department. But a new paper from Dr. Manella Steller from the Josep Carreras Leukemia Research Institute in Barcelona, Spain, hints that this resemblance may go much deeper than the surface. The team recruited 32 dynamic duos that were included in a photography project by Canadian artist Francois Brunel. From that group, 16 were so similar that they even fooled facial recognition software and had similar DNA. And the thing that makes this most noteworthy is that none of these pairs were related and most came from way different parts of the globe. And this is one of those classic Science Night moments where the story on its own is interesting, but I think the implications of this project are even more noteworthy. So what do we think about doppelganger DNA? Doesn't surprise me at all, but very cool. Why doesn't it surprise me? Mostly because there are only so many ways that genes can interact with one another, and those interactions produce phenotypes that are external ways that those genes are expressing themselves. That appearance can only happen in so many different permutations. It doesn't surprise me that when you look at enough individuals, that individuals who look more similar might have genetic structure that's similar. That doesn't surprise me at all. Um, We know that from families, but it doesn't surprise me that that's true across families as well, or, you know, with very distantly related people or not related at all people. Certain combinations of genes are going to produce a certain phenotype, and that's going to look a certain way. It's more complicated than that, of course, but on a very basic level, that doesn't surprise me at all. I think it was fascinating to see the pictures from the art exhibit that kind of spurred inspiration for the study. And you know, like Jason just mentioned, the science behind it, but just seeing it in the pictures and how similar people look was amazing. That was fascinating. And then the implications coming from this research are pretty fascinating as well. They used first step facial recognition software to look at these 32 pairs for their subject of their study, identified 16 of those as, hey, let's go into the DNA and see how similar Mm -hmm. the DNA is. And what that flags is uh, another offshoot of this study is the limits of the accuracy of facial recognition software. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's terrifying to think that two people... So actually, let me illustrate your point really quickly or finish that point, which is the way that they selected those individuals for study of their genes was that they were not closely related. They weren't related at all, yet the facial recognition software identified them as um, identical twins. That's the important part here because they looked identical or at least they looked like they were identical twins, yet they weren't related at all. And so because of that, they looked at the genetics, right? And so this is just incredibly nuts to think that these combinations of genes can be put together. We start to look a certain way because of it. uh, And suddenly the technology that we have that is being used to surveil all sorts of activity across the globe is less reliable. That's horrifying. Sure. I mean, there was so many twists and turns in this. I'm going to be honest. When Jason added this story to the doc, I was like, oh, this is going to be an adorable little thing about how people look closely alike and then i was like oh this has ramifications on our web security things that we're trying to ramp up now and then it also has like informative properties on epigenetics and like Mm -hmm. the philosophy of nature versus nurture that they were starting to talk about like wow there's a lot going on here and more than that 
also paleontology is now at risk. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because if we think that um, uh, similar combinations yeah. of genes mean that we're closely related and that certain morphologies, certain shapes of the skull or certain bumps and grooves on bones that, you know, are aligned with some sort of affinity group. If that's just because of a combination of genes that could happen anywhere, it sort of calls into question any of the stuff that we've thought about in terms of species that are closely related because of morphologies that look close to one another. It's crazy to me. This whole molecules versus morphology debate will be back in the in the forefront, right? And so that's this idea here that sometimes if you look at the tree of life um, as it's you know reconstructed based on genetic information, it looks very different than if you look at it based on skeletal or some other kind of information, right? Some morphological, some shape or or bumper groove morphology. Reconciling those two things has always been difficult. This might actually make it easier to understand some of those disparate trees of life, but it's going to complicate the whole discipline. I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, you're not saying it's a bad thing. No. But... I don't think it's a bad thing. You know, there was like the big shakeup when I just happened to pick up my my edition of Romer's uh, Man and the Vertebrates. And I remember reading through that and seeing how different those trees of life definitely are when I'm trying to memorize things. Mm, sure. Yeah. I mean, it always made it difficult to sort of understand how either one of them was more reliable than the other. Right. Which well. is truthier, right? Right. Oh. <laughs> um, and... I think that that brought me back to thinking about this article where we're talking about the similarities as far as the DNA and the phenotype, so the appearance. But then they went a step further and looked at the epigenetic factors like their life history and their microbiome and saw that there was significant differences in this so it's not as easy as dna leads to this and this and this that right. it's like mm-hmm. a combination of things sure and it underscores actually an interesting point about evolutionary biology and that is that there is an entire discipline within that subdiscipline within the discipline of evolutionary biology that is historical science and what i mean by that is that it relies on the history of life on this earth which is different than other parts of evolutionary biology, which want to explain what is possible versus how did it happen. And that would be the historical aspect, right? Like if we understand how genes interact with one another to produce uh, morphologies, to produce phenotypes that are recognizable, that's one thing. But then to say, okay, now how did that happen through the history of life on Earth? That's a different thing altogether. And it makes it more difficult to reconcile those those two parts of the discipline, right? If you've got the molecules that are saying one thing versus the morphologies that are saying another thing, it might just be because it's possible to do this one way and it's the way it happened in the other way, right? If that makes sense. This one was fascinating. I really like this. Wow. I'm excited to see what comes from this, like what the actual ripple effects are from this article so maybe i'll throw myself up a google google alert to nice. uh, tell me when things are happening you should or totally maybe do that. we should just reach out to manella seller and see if he'll there you come go on the podcast. i mean i thought yeah. it was fascinating too that they threw in there that you know maybe these findings will help doctors diagnose illnesses in the future mm-hmm. yeah right and I guess that's the the thing that you know I, I mentioned. But he is from a leukemia research institute in in Spain. Um, so you know he's doing this thing that they're talking about, like oh, people that look alike share different DNA. But I I think he was kind of trying to figure something else out based on the uh, findings and experimentation here. Right, and you know the thing we didn't talk about at all was that. Um in addition to just looking alike, there were epigenetic traits, right? I don't know if that's the right term to use, but traits that probably are a combination of all sorts of interactions that um, depend on an environmental interaction as well, like behavior or exercise level or education level, right? Yeah. And so those things were fascinating to me. And I also wonder how much of that is related to the nurture 
aspect here, sure. right? So like, yeah. do you get certain combinations of genes that reflect education level because of the way that neurons are being developed early in childhood, right? Parents are reading or whatever to the child and does it form neurons in a particular way that then, you know, is expressed genetically somehow as well because it's been sort of subjected to epigenetic influence. Anyway, it was interesting to me. The morphology stuff was way more interesting to me, though. Yeah. So the thing that really struck me in looking at the photos from this is for a study that could have pretty broad impacts and a photo project from like a pretty famous Canadian artist, it really looked like a very weird Sears portrait studio meme that mm-hmm. was being oh. created. Just very serious stares with very campy poses in black and white, like yeah. staring down the barrel of the camera and into your soul. I was looking at those and I was like, I'm not touching a stranger like that. Uh, yeah, but if they looked like you, perhaps, you know. I don't you know, think per- so. I got to think, though. Here's no the touchy. Thing. You got to think that, like, if they look like you, they might also have pheromones that smell like yours. Mm-hmm. Oh, right? so maybe you feel homey next to them, right? Like it's you're, you feel like you're at home. OK, maybe. what I thought of when I saw those pictures was that there was the like a creepier version of the um, Wrigley's double mint gum ads sure. from the 80s. Yeah, they could get that going up again. Uh huh. But like a, a grim, dark version of it. The yeah, right. Exactly. Version. Here at the Science Night Podcast, we don't shy away from covering news about creepy crawlers, but for some reason, this particular eight-legged friend has eluded us. So let's talk about spiders, the amazing arachnids with bad publicists that have multimedia franchises dedicated to how people are afraid of them and how learning about the web that they've spun around our nightmares can teach us about how misinformation can spread throughout the digital age. So what do we think about arachnophobia and the spider web of misinformation? I am scared of spiders. So I'm not, I am one of those people that sees a headline about spiders. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to do it. And it turns out a lot of other people are as well. Yeah. (laughs) So are you the type that when you see a spider, you're going to burn the house down? No, but they said people have literally been so afraid of right. spiders that they have burned houses down. In Britain. That oh, that wild. happens in America too. I've seen videos, right? I've seen people like try to kill a spider with like uh, some sort Flame of aerosol doors. can and a lighter. It's like, yeah, that's in their kitchen. That seems dumb, mm-hmm. but I've seen it happen. I've seen the videos. I'm not that. Like I will like take them outside. If I can, if it's not You'll too like them? in my face. Well, because they are very good for our ecosystem. So I very much appreciate them. Yeah. They're also really good for keeping bugs in your house under I control. Know. Right? Yeah. I, know. I don't That's typically why. I don't typically deal with spiders. I just kinda let them be in my house. But I also grew up in Kansas where there were brown recluses everywhere. And so I've learned to like be respectful of spiders they don't frighten me um i have been bitten by a brown recluse multiple times um it's not a lot of fun yeah you know it hurts it's necrotic you know you got to go on antibiotics but you can live you can coexist with spiders pretty easily what i found interesting about this story though was that in places where there aren't a lot of venomous spiders the headlines are more sensational Yep. And they get people riled up. But in places like Australia, where there are more deadly spiders, right, to humans than anywhere else on this planet, you know, so more venomous spiders than anywhere else, the headlines are usually all about the information and not sensationalist. And yeah. that is helpful for public health, right? I mean, if you don't get everyone worked up, they can learn to identify the spiders that they should stay away from. Let's break down the study and their findings. So they were looking at they were looking at negative headlines versus like benign general headlines and then they were looking at sensationalizing versus informing. And they found that the most negative coverage was from Mexico. The most kind of like benign oh they exist was from Finland, which kind of makes sense. And then the most 
informative, as Jason was saying, was from Australia, where everything is bred to kill you. <laughs> and mm-hmm. the most sensational was from Britain, which has two poisonous spiders, and I don't think either can be immediately fatal based on an, on a single bite. Yeah. So, <laughs> and that and that is where someone burned down a house because of a spider, mm-hmm. and that yeah. schools have been closed due to false reports of black widows. Right. Right. And funny enough, the U.S. kind of fell in the middle of all of this. So even in spiders were polarized. Oh. Shocker. Just for context, too, when we talk about there's not very many that are venomous or it can hurt you, there's more than 50,000 known species of spiders in the world, and only a few can harm humans. And I I liked how they even went a little deeper from the public, like arachnophobia, to the fact that medical professionals are often like, well, we better treat this like a spider bite, even though it doesn't follow any of the signs or they don't have a spider crumpled up with them or anything like that. So even even when we're looking at treatment protocols, it is a little bit sensationalized because of the bad rap of these dang arachnids. Well, and we don't know enough about them, too. Yeah. So maybe if we were more informed, we wouldn't be so afraid of them. I know after reading this and I started reading more about spiders, I'm not as afraid of them. So that has helped me. Yeah. You know, I think it would be a wise investment of National Science Foundation money to invest in uh, in spider research, given that, you know, with climate change happening and insects migrating, this would be an important way to control that spread. Yeah. Understanding more about how how spiders function but hey i'm just one person spiders have never bothered me i think they're cool i like the fact that they could eat a fly in my house and then it won't bother me but another arachnid that i kind of am afraid of or at least a little more concerned about are ticks Mm, especially in up here in new england where due to climate change uh Mm -hmm. again take a shot we said climate change is making things worse we got all kinds of ticks in New England now and nothing native that eats them. So we're kind of waiting for things that eat ticks to also make their way up this way to kind of control the population. But for right now, like if you go outside in the summertime and it has rained recently, man, you got to do a tick check. Make sure you don't have anything crawling on you. But then I read more about ticks and it's like, oh, the uh, the idea that you're going to get Lyme disease if you don't have deer ticks around you is pretty low. And we don't have like the Lone Star tick up here yet. That's probably on its way. It's moving. Um, but if you look at the headlines in Vermont, it's like ticks. Uh, you get one near your house, you'll get Lyme disease. You know what you need so. in Vermont? What? Tarsiers. Tarsiers. Oh yeah, sure. Yep, they do. They famously do well in Vermont winters. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Tarsiers are uh, are primates. Um, they are creepy looking, nocturnal primates. Definitely don't look like monkeys because they're not, but are also not lemurs because they're not, and so um, they look different than all of them. Huh. They're creepy. They have giant eyes. Yeah, yeah. So they have like giant eyes because they're nocturnal. Yeah, but not the you know south Southeast Asia. Is what we're looking at for Tarsiers, yeah, yeah. right? Southeast Asia. Yeah. Not Vermont. Um, well, I mean, not yet. Yeah. Not with that attitude, right? <laughs> right. Not with that attitude. I like that. So one thing I found interesting about this article was they were drawing parallels between spread of sens- sensationalized spider news and circulation of misinformation during elections. And a lot of people trust their local news outlets. Mm-hmm. And so if they don't have factual information from local news outlets, and then it gets amplified to the national or international news. That's what they were seeing in spider articles. That's what we were seeing in election news, too. So I think that really goes back to responsible journalism when you're doing these articles, because they can get amplified so easily. I liked this error that they found in one of the local articles for spiders, jumping spider's venom makes blood flow like peanut butter from a wound. <laughs> That's not true. It's not true. Be wary about your news sources in all things, especially as we get into another election cycle. Just make sure that you're reading from reliable sources and double checking if something seems a little more sensational than it might be. So, yeah, as in all, spiders. Wars in Ukraine, election cycles, fad diets. Be careful out there. 
Well, this has been a little bit depressing talking about misinformation and the fall of like Western democracy and all that good stuff. So I think we should have a little bit of a science night game night. How does that sound? I love it. Why don't we go and talk to our new friends, doctors Michaela Stiver and Zach London, about their new card game called Foramina. We'll have that conversation after this message from a podcast that I think you will enjoy. Hi, friends. Cameron here. I host a bi-weekly podcast called Nature is Gay that explores themes of sex and sexuality and gender expression across the natural world. We talk about pseudocopulation and sociosexual behaviors, asexual reproduction, in plants and animals and fungi and every little thing in between. It's a great time. I'm a little biased, but I think you should check it out. That's Nature is Gay, available wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to the podcast. Tonight, we have two very special guests with us. Michaela Stiver, a lecturer in the Division of Anatomical Sciences at McGill University, and Zach London, professor of neurology and clinical neurology at the University of Michigan. And they are here to talk to us about their new game called Foramina, so we can have fun with skull base anatomy i'm very excited about this michaela and zach welcome to the podcast thanks, thanks for having for us, having us. <laughs> listeners to the podcast and hopefully new listeners will go back and listen to the back catalog know that we've had a bit of a moment with gaming we just went to gen con about two weeks ago and we got to talk to a lot of game developers including one game called critical care where icu doctors created a board game to kind of show their experience to the world and new doctors. And they said, you know, you should really check out this game called Foramina. I'm like, I think I follow both of these people on Twitter. I wonder if I could bully them to coming on the podcast. And it worked. Why don't we talk about this game called Foramina? Sounds good. Maybe I'll let Zach start off just because this was his brainchild to start yeah. with. I love that we're talking about brainchild. We're getting puns established very early in this conversation. So, Zach, what made you decide to have a game about cranial nerves and where they travel through? I actually was inspired by these cranial nerve cards that Michaela had made. And I found those on Twitter too. I, I can tell you, I have, I have a background in making neurology themed games. This is my fourth actually, but the first one that has anything to do with cranial nerves. And I started thinking about what game mechanisms that I've really enjoyed playing with and have not ever been able to put into a game before. And I would say most of my prior games have been based on the fact that neuroanatomy is very map oriented. And it's sort of like, how we localize in neurology utilizes maps and how we localize in the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system, how we find lesions in patients. We kind of think about all these pathways crossing over each other and understanding those pathways helps us understand how to interpret clinical findings in patients. But one mechanism that I really love in games that I haven't really been able to take advantage of before is an element of chance and particularly dice rolling. And when neurologists examine patients, we think about all 12 cranial nerves, but we really only think about two through 12. Like nobody ever really thinks about the first cranial nerve, which has to do with smell. We just, you know, clinically, it's just not something we test very often. So you're gonna often hear people say this phrase, like oh, I tested cranial nerves two through 12. And, uh, you know, I've been playing some games where you're rolling two dice and it just occurred to me, like when you roll two dice, you can roll a number between two and 12. Like those are the things that can come up and something clicked. I was like, basically we have to do something that involves dice rolling and cranial nerves. And that I think just sort of led us down this pathway that eventually turned into foramina. That's super interesting. And I love that even in your epiphany, the olfactory nerve, cranial nerve one is eliminated as well. Uh. <laughs> I mean, we use it in the game. Yeah, we, we, but yes, absolutely. I mean, we couldn't not. It's actually my favorite 
card in the game. I don't know if you agree, Michaela, but I feel like the art for that card with the, the weird, like creepy nose and odors going up into it are it's probably like one of my favorite things about the game. Uh, <laughs> uh, but in real life, the olfactory nerve is just not something I care about. The olfactory nerve is getting tested by the amount of cologne that the doctor is wearing into the room. And if there is a, an immediate cringe, maybe maybe that's showing you something there too. <laughs> I mean, um, if I could just jump in here for a second and advocate on behalf of Cranial Nerve 1, <laughs> if we've learned anything during this time of COVID, it's that our sense of smell is very important and not having it leads to a significant decrease in the quality of life. So I just want to say that even if it's stinky smells that we're smelling, not being able to sniff those stinky smells makes us not as happy and mm. it decreases the quality of our life. So give it up for Cranial Nerve 1, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. We've established like why the why for this game and the desire to make this game. Michaela, how did you get brought on to this project? Yeah, so I mean, Zach and I had chatted a little bit um, on Twitter. Plug for Twitter, everyone get on Twitter. Um, <laughs> I'm not and... familiar with what this Twitter is, so can you tell us a little bit about what this is? <laughs> you do you do the tweets on the internet? <laughs> okay. Um, okay. No, I mean Twitter is a fantastic place to connect, especially in the academic community. I mean, I think a lot of people see Twitter as just this hellish bird app or whatever other uh, names they've given to it. But the academic world on Twitter is actually a pretty great place to be, I have to say. And the vast majority of the connections that I've made both sort of personally and professionally throughout my very short career so, so far um, have very much been on Twitter. And so Zach and I had connected a while back. I think one of our first conversations was just around the printing of my cranial nerve cards. I had used the Game Crafter. He wanted to sort of know what my experience was. He has a couple of games on there already. Curious to sort of hear how things were going. We had sort of got, gotten talking about trying to develop a game. Um, he already had something in mind. He started telling me about dice rolling and it all just, it all made sense, right? 12, 12, like, could it be any more perfect? And for me as a but relatively new lecturer, just starting my second year here at McGill, I'm still trying to figure out what on earth I'm going to do when it comes to scholarship, because my basic science background does not lend well to a teaching focused position where I don't have lab space, I don't have money, I don't have time. Um, so I want to do something that I genuinely enjoy. And I absolutely love games. I love board games. I love card games. I love dice rolling games. Not a big video game person, I have to say. I get really bad motion sickness. So always been very drawn to tabletop games and in developing my cranial nerve cards that is not really yet a full-fledged game, but perhaps one day will be, realized that it's also just a fantastic way to engage students. Whether or not they are actually seeing quantifiable improvements in their grades, I mean, uh, to me, that's very much secondary. If it's something that gets people excited, whether it's students or whether it's just people out there who are like, oh, this is cool, that's partly the goal. Like that, that works for me. That makes me happy to see people engaging with science and being like, damn, this is really neat. I want to learn more. And especially when it comes to anything neuro with the, all the neurophobia that is floating around, I feel like games are just the perfect way to kind of marry, you know, a little bit of childhood nostalgia and a little bit of just the entertainment factor of that game with a topic that is often seen as completely unpalatable to most, mm -hmm. put them together and people start to realize, hey, this is actually kind of cool. And it's not so bad once you start to see all the connections and all of the different ways things work. So, I mean, Zach was kind enough to uh, let me jump on board and he already had uh, Alex Dye lined up as the illustrator for the game, who um, many people may have seen his image floating around of like the exploded head man with all the cranial nerves coming out of the brain and going to all their different functions in the face. So I was extra excited about this. Um, so yeah, no, it was, it was really exciting and I'm so glad that I was able to be involved. So can we take a step back for a minute here and just discuss maybe the elephant in the room for those who don't know, and that is, what is a cranial nerve? What is a cranial nerve? Well, I mean, in strictest terms, a cranial nerve is a peripheral nerve, but specifically a peripheral nerve that's coming out of the brain or brain stem. They have to, first and foremost, either get into or get out of the skull. And that's what this whole game is about. The magical little holes, the foramina, through which they get from our brain and our brainstem into the wild world of the head. And so the cranial nerves, they will either carry sensory information or motor information. And 
many times both and have all kinds of fantastic functions and in our little description on the back of the box you'll see some of those you know we can taste things we can kiss things we can get slapped in the face and feel it each of those cranial nerves has very specific functions they all come through different holes as well so, so i'd say that's about it in a nutshell i'm very rambly i apologize no that was fantastic that yeah. was fantastic i do have a follow-up question though because the very first thing you said when i said uh, what is a cranial nerve is well first and foremost it's a peripheral nerve and then we kind of left that so what do you mean by that michaela well, so we have a central nervous system and we have a peripheral nervous system. So centrally, we have a brain and that brain is connected to the spinal cord that runs down our spinal column or vertebral column in the back. And all the little whispery bits that come out, all the little nerves that come out are considered to be peripheral nerves. So we have them going to our head and neck, which what we're talking about here with cranial nerves, but also going to our entire body, primarily in the, the extremities, the arms and legs in particular. We have a lot of of peripheral nerves in that area. And then all of our skin and all that stuff too, right? So we're literally, we're just big segmented worms who've evolved a little bit past that. Couldn't have said it any better. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate that. From a clinical standpoint, when we are looking at people that have neurologic problems, clinical neurologists often do a lot with regards to a physical examination to try to figure out what's going wrong with people. You know, and of course the brain has to interact with the world. Things go in, things go out. And our physical exam is sort of aimed at figuring out where the problem is. Sometimes we use that as a key to what the problem is. And the cranial nerve examination is kind of a standard part of the exam that every medical student learns. And it's something that I think requires a fair amount of memorization early on, just sort of learning what these 12 cranial nerves are, what they do, how to examine them. And so if you pull any, certainly a first year medical student and you, you start mentioning these terms, these cranial nerves and, and these foramina, these are all terms that are very familiar to them on one hand because they've had to learn it for tests, but very unfamiliar to them because for the most part, they haven't really encountered these in real humans yet, other than themselves, I suppose. So I think we wanted to sort of focus on this aspect of something that students often are sort of forced to learn, but make it something that's fun um, and memorable and uses familiar terms to them. We're kind of building this game up now. We have the reason to create it. We have the people with the knowledge to create a science game in general. And now the part that I'm really interesting, interested in because I have no concept of how you even begin this is how do you start developing the game mechanics, like how the game is going to function and work? I guess my approach to this usually is to play a lot of games. <laughs> I've done that. We all have done that. Michaela's done it too. I, I would say, you know, I've been a big tabletop gamer for a long time, but that really came to a head during the pandemic. I think I have, you know, school age, now high school age kids. And when we were all stuck at home in early 2020, like we basically played a new game every night. And we actually started a little like family board game review site. And we've now played as a family and reviewed like 140 something games. And it got me thinking, having to write the reviews, was very different from just playing the games. Having to write the reviews really forced you to think about, well, what is it about this that's fun or not fun? And I read a book by Justin Gary, I believe his name is, and I'm so sorry if I get it wrong, I think that's his name, on how to think like a game designer. He's just a professional actual board game maker, unlike us. Really the first couple chapters are just about play a bunch of games and then try to write down, well, what is it about this that you like or don't like what and, and really try to hone it down to a very single mechanism because I think it's very tempting when you want to design a game to like think of a theme and then just try to do the whole thing at once. So I've been playing a lot of games that are sort of dice rolling and income based and the most popular ones are probably Machi Koro and Space Base. I don't know if you've played either of those, but those are probably the most similar to Foramina. They involve you roll dice what you roll gives you some money, you use that money to buy cards that allow you to win more stuff when you roll dice. And that's sort of the fundamental mechanism that I wanted to base this off of. And then we just iterate from there, little by little by little by little, playing it and game testing it a thousand different times and trying out new rules and seeing what works and what doesn't. I haven't played the game yet. I, I will be ordering this game for both personal use and for the study room because gotta have fun in, in the lab, right? I feel like this uh, game has been designed and kind of implemented in a, a very elegant way where there is a line between just teaching 
cranial nerves, like between a, a cranial nerve lecture and from a game. Uh, so there's a nice blend of that. How did you balance the science and the actual game mechanics? Where did you find the balance between how much information are we going to have packed onto this and we have to also make it fun? For people who are not anatomists, I think anatomy is fun just on its own. I wanted to make this game fun for people who know no anatomy and have no interest in learning anatomy. That was one of the things going into this. I think with some of the past games I've worked on, it was very alienating to people who were not learners or who didn't already know the material. And this one, I really wanted to do something that I could play with my kids. And I feel like a lot of games use words that are unfamiliar. You know, they make up words, right? This is just, we're gonna call this a gazonkazonk or something like that. And then you just learn that that's the name for that card. Um, and then you can just sort of play the game without knowing it. So I wanted to make it that you didn't really have to know the cranial nerves to play, but if you do wanna learn it, everything is anatomically accurate. It lines up, it tells you both the names of the nerves and the, and the functions of the nerves and where they go through the skull. Um, and so those are all elements of the game, but it doesn't really ram it down your throat. So that's an interesting perspective that you came to this game with the express perspective that you were going to make it so that anyone could play this, not just folks who were familiar with the information and, you know, ahead of time. And so I wonder, did that come out of your board game playing with your family? Did you guys play your games and review them and realize that if they didn't understand the material that it was much less fun than it could have been had the game not required that sort of base level of knowledge ahead of time. Yeah, absolutely. And I will tell you that my son, Malcolm, who, when we were developing this, I think was 13, the first time I played this with him, like the paper version, you know, not the version that's now in the box, but just like pieces of paper with pencil drawings on them. Uh, he beat me the first time he played. He does not know his neuroanatomy at all. I mean, he's probably learned some of it now. Whether or not you win the game probably doesn't correlate with your knowledge. Let's say we play Faramina, we have a rousing game of Faramina, and we achieve like the perfect goal of science communication, which is we get somebody more interested in learning about the thing that we're playing. Is there anything included that could be like an easy next step for them to learn a little bit more without just getting like a Grey's Anatomy text? Well, I guess the only thing I can think of is that the game cards have these little icons on them that represent the type of nerve it is. And, and so for instance, like if there's these terms that I would say students probably dread, I probably anatomists dread, right? Um, like special sensory afferent or general visceral efferent. And they have these subcategorizations that I don't know, I had to memorize these things when I was in med school and it just makes your eyes spin around in your head. And we have them represented as sort of colored icons or badges on the cards that if you were to just look at the color or the, or the image, the one for instance, that goes with the olfactory nerve just shows a picture of a pizza with some scents coming out of it. There are other types of nerves that fall into that category too. You can just look at the pizza and play the game, but if you want to learn what those icons stand for, there's sort of a glossary in the back, and then that could sort of send people to uh, investigating further if they wanted to learn more about it. I think that's a great addition. Just having that glossary can kind of increase their terminology a little bit more. And I also think using some of those kind of very hard to say, like glossopharyngeal, instead of maybe not using the actual title of the cranial nerves is a good way to get people another area where they could investigate. I got to ask the question too, like, how did it become a pizza for the olfactory nerve? nerve? You smell and you taste pizza and there, there are icons for like a hand touching a face for, you know, for the ones that have to do with sort of your standard type of sensation. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I could have done sure. taco or Kansas City <laughs> barbecue or whatever it was that you guys think would be appropriate. We could make a, a follow-up addition with something different that has a, a different positive odor. Kind of like what Monopolies made their niche now is we can have the Kansas City barbecue for Ramina edition. Regional expansion packs regional expansion packs <laughs> i guess in wisconsin you could you could have some kind of cheese based cheese curds it's gotta be cheese curds and brats 
I am kind of interested in if you are thinking about the future for foramina using not cranial. There's a lot of foramina in the skull base that don't have cranial nerves going through them. Is there going to be like a cardiovascular system expansion pack uh, so that my favorite foramina, the foramen lacernum, can get a little bit love? Uh, yeah, you need a little uh, cartilaginous plug right there in yeah. the serum, right? Boom. It's so just, many it, words. I don't know half these words you're yeah, all using. Neither do I. It's okay. <laughs> I, I just think it rolls off the tongue real nice, the foramen lacernum. Well, you'll you'll be happy to see, James, when you get a copy that there are several foramina that do not have cranial nerves uh, that are incorporated into this game. But I'm not going to give away anything more than that. You'll just have to. Oh, man, no spoilers here. I can't get the scoop. Does the game provide the English translations of the names of each foramen? Oh, that's no, okay. I guess uh, that's not. A good question. I don't think I know the English translations of most. Well, I just figure, you know, like foramen magnum. Big hole. Big hole. Big hole. Right. Yeah. No, you know? we should have included like a little Latin glossary. Maybe that'll go on the website at some point. Right. Little, little. I do love a good etymology lesson. I stick it in all of my lectures, so that would right. be great. Yeah, big hole, round hole. Right for Raymond Ovali, for Raymond Rotundum, right round hole and uh, oval shaped hole. Right, right. They weren't very creative, actually. So, no. Michaela, do you know? Because I. I've always wondered this, like we, we kept talking about this when we were writing out the instructions, why the plural of foramen is foramina. I mean, it even changes the E to an I, and I don't understand if that's Greek or Latin or just nonsense. As definitely Latin. Having not taken Latin or anything like that in high school, I don't have all the background, but as someone who likes to stick true to, to Latin plurals, that seems to be the go-to for when you have that sort of E-N ending, um, which is confusing because to me, foramen, like multiple men, sounds like multiple foramina, but it's one foramen. Ooh, now I've got myself twisted in circles. But yeah, this came up recently. We were just relabeling our lab and looking up the plurals of things like uh, larynx. Do you know what the plural of larynx is? Because I thought it was just larynxes. It's larynges. Larynges. Is it really? It is. Yeah, it is. It's an awesome word, yeah. isn't it? It's not what I would have gone with. <laughs> larynges and pharynges. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. huh. And phalanges. See, it makes sense, right? Oh, yeah. phalanx and with phalange. The X, okay, I'm yeah, back on exactly. board. Yeah. So now we've gotten to linguistics talk, we should bring David J. Peterson in and can create a language for human anatomy that is not Latin or Greek. Wouldn't so, that be nice? <laughs> just another thing for the students to memorize. Who did you pick for your test audience? Well, I think Michaela and I both had different test audiences. For me, it was mm -hmm. mostly medical students rotating on the neurology service. Unfortunately, there's this uh, unwritten power dynamic, which is that if I ask them if they want to do something, they're always going to enthusiastically say yes. And I just took advantage of that <laughs> um, and, uh, and had them play the game. And I think they were actually quite grateful. But of course, you know, they were going to say they were no matter what. Um, so mostly I wasn't asking for their opinions. I was mostly just watching to see what they were confused about and what they got and what seemed to actually generate genuine moments of observable enthusiasm. It's interesting what can happen when IRB is not uh, approving your methods. <laughs> don't have to worry about it. It's not getting published anywhere. You don't have to. Yeah, I just recruited sort of, you know, friends and family for the most part, many of whom, despite my partner having a PhD in neuroscience, knows absolutely nothing about cranial nerves or foramina, not neuroanatomy, neuroscience. And thus, yeah, it was interesting to see people who had no subject matter expertise whatsoever interact with the game. And it was honestly still just as fun. I mean, everything is really bright and colorful and it's very user-friendly. It's very easy to match things. And um, the cards all line up real pretty, which is, is really, really satisfying, honestly. So yeah, it was interesting from my perspective to see people who are, were, were like, I don't know what this is, but all right, I'll give it a go. And to see which parts of the game they were really engaged with, it, it tends to start out a little slow because it just takes a few minutes to you know, wrap your head around the different stages of each turn. But once it gets going, then it gets 
then it gets wild. I also appreciate something that is a, a more fast-paced game because it makes it much more replayable, which is, again, increasing the opportunities for people to engage with science over and over and over. So very well done on that front. It's like it's almost like you put a lot of thought and effort into the creation of this game. I guess I would just speak games in general, why I think they're good for learners. And I, you know, again, most of the learners that I work with are medical students and residents. I'd be curious to see those of you who work with other learners, if you think these rules apply to the types of learners you work with. But with medical students, it's hard for them to get to where they were in life without at least a little bit being innately competitive people, you know, because you have to do well in high school and college and, you know, and you are for better, or for worse, sort of competing with other people to try to get into um, a limited number of spots for medical school. But then once they get there, that competitiveness is very uncool. It is not socially acceptable, right? So when you're rotating with medical students on the wards, if they are in any way seen to be undercutting each other, anything like that, that, you know, is, uh, is really a black mark. So one of the nice things about games is they are a socially acceptable means to be competitive. And you can take people who, you know, I mean, these are very friendly, nice, wonderful medical students. And then you put them in a room and you have them play a competitive game and suddenly the claws come out in a major way. And I think that is fun to watch, but I think it also like adds to their engagement quite a lot because they're not thinking so hard about is this socially acceptable to appear to be trying to beat out my friend and my colleague? When they're playing games, they are trying to beat each other big time. Sure. I almost wonder if that works as like a pressure relief valve too, where people who have to be very professional in front of each other all the time have the opportunity to vent in a different way and still have that professional relationship maintained as well. So I was fairly recently involved in developing a game with some students at the University of British Columbia and Claudia Krebs and all of her wonderful hive folks over there. And in developing this game, it was also to be suited for medical students, but still be playable by anyone. And so we did a little bit of user research because I had sort of said, I don't know, like, do they want a competitive game or maybe they want a cooperative game? Like maybe they want a, a bit take a, mm. to be able to take a step back from all that competitive, angsty energy. And the survey results came back overwhelmingly in favor of we want competition and we want it to be cutthroat competition. Like <laughs> I want to be able to screw over everyone else at the table. So that kind of went into the that that game design. And I can see why that would be an appealing piece for something like Paramina as well. So the last thing I want to talk about is the artwork. Uh, we do not have the artist here, but the artwork is pretty incredible. It is fun and vibrant and quite accurate as well. So how did you how did you find the artist and uh, how did you kind of decide on on that art style? Well, it was Twitter again. I think I had seen Michaela actually share this piece of art by Alex Dye that I looked at it and I thought, wow, this is I want this for the cover of the game. I didn't know who he was. I reached out to him. I find out that he's a fourth year medical student. I think it was at Tufts. And I just sort of, you know, emailed him out of the blue. I was like, hey, could I, could I just license this one piece of art for this game? It didn't even occur to me at the time that he might be willing to do more. Uh, and he wrote back, he's like, sure, I've never like licensed any art before, but like, you know, I'll do it for not very much money. And I was like, did you see your fourth year medical student? Does that mean you're like doing nothing for the next three months? Because this was like the end, this is in the spring and like they have their match and then they kind of do nothing until they move and then they start internship. And he was going to be a surgery intern is at Duke. And I can imagine like day one of being a surgery intern, like we're never going to hear from this guy again. So we had this window and uh, it just happened to work out that he was available during that time. And I think really dedicated himself to this. And I think because of his background as both an artist and having a medical background, he was really able to contribute in creative ways to this project that we probably couldn't have come up with ourselves. It is really awesome, and we'll have we'll have that linked on our website so you can see his work and and see what this game looks like. The last thing I'm going to ask you is where can we find the game and where how can we keep up with what the two of you are doing? So the game at the moment we have we do have a website for it, which I think is kind of cute. Foraminagame.com. You can find all the details on there, including links to both the instructional video and the 
loosely termed music video please don't sue us it's just for fun that has links as well to the game crafters so the game crafter is basically a print-on-demand site great for anyone who might want to try their hand at game design because it's really easy and fairly cost-effective to order parts or try designing your own parts with very low risk. But on the Game Crafter, you can find Foramina. You can also find all of Zach's other fabulous games. Um, you can find my Cranial Nerve cards as well as Gut It Out that was done with the UBC students. That's kind of where I'm planning, at least for the future, on distributing most of my new creations because it's the most accessible way for someone like me who doesn't have heaps of extra time and do doesn't have a whole bunch of seed money to buy thousands of copies and then distribute them to people. You can just order as many as you want. They deal with the production, the shipping, everything on their end, which is absolutely wonderful. Or you can follow us on Twitter. I don't know if we've mentioned Twitter yet. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, you should check it out. <laughs> yeah. They should really be paying us for all of this uh, traffic we're going to be getting to this little startup. So, so Michaela, where, how can we follow you on Twitter? What is your, what's your at? My handle is the least creative handle that has ever existed. It's literally just my first and last name. It's just at Michaela Stiver. And Zach, where can we, where can we follow you? I think I am also just my name. I think I'm Zach London. I think there might be an underscore in between them. All right. Well, we'll have a link to that just in case there isn't an underscore on our website. Michaela and Zach, Team Foramina, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks so much for having us. This was so much fun. You have made it to the end of another episode, but fear not, we have lots of stuff coming your way, so make sure to follow us on social media. If you want to follow me, I'm at James underscore read three. Steffi, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter at Steffi Deem or on Instagram at Starshipin. And Jason, where can everybody find you? As always on Twitter at OregonJM. You can follow the podcast at SciNightPod and check out our website SciNight.com for past episodes, the stories we talk about and the people we talk to, and of course, our merch. There is lots to see, and you can see it all at Cyanite.com. And we are done with the Gen Con special episodes, which means James gets a, a little bit of a breather going into the fall. So we will be back in two weeks with a new episode. And until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. Thank you. Okay, now I got to ask, because I was on your website and I saw the theme song. Talk about it. I need to know about the puppets. I need to know about how it happened. <laughs>